Hello, and welcome to Metachemistry. This is episode four. Continuing our exploration of list building, this episode will consider the roles that various units play in putting together a viable tournament list. Now, one of the aspects of the original Metachemistry podcast that I valued above all others was how it educated me on infinity. And what I mean by this is, yes, Dexter and Nate would do faction breakdowns and deliver their top five lists each episode. And the information that they would share would be informative and entertaining. But somehow beyond all of that, beyond all the various component parts, be it factions, units, lists, or maybe because of all of that, they were able to convey their approach to the game. It was as if each episode was a window into their distinctive perspective on Infinity. And in doing that, they taught me how to think about the game. And that was what kept me coming back again and again. Now, as our current team attempts a reboot of Metachemistry in the new N4 context, we acknowledge that more than ever, the information is already out there. If you need an introduction to the game, there are whole YouTube channels like Infinity Gamer dedicated to the topic. If you want faction specific breakdowns, Several current excellent podcasts like White Noise and MayaCast are running series right now of episodes that do deep dives into your favorite faction. If battle reports are your thing, shows like The Dice Abides and Warp Charge Gaming, they're offering up truckloads of content. Metachemistry was founded with an eye towards ITS tactics and gameplay, and this remains the focus. Yes, we'll do our due diligence and cover foundational aspects of the game, as we did in our previous episodes in our discussion of various unit types. But in the long run, our goal is not to simply provide information so much as to offer a window into how each member of the team respectively thinks about playing the game. And in so far as we are able to do that, maybe we'll all grow a bit more. With that in mind, we turn to the topic at hand. You may be familiar with the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. First coined by the philosopher Aristotle, this phrase aptly defines the modern concept of synergy. For anyone who has played team sports, it echoes the TEAM acronym, T-E-A-M. Together, everyone achieves more. In the organizational leadership world, pundits maintain that this principle describes the synergy which exists between individuals working together in a cooperative effort. Collectively, they are able to achieve an outcome superior to that of each working alone. Now, when it comes to the game of infinity, we are all prone to analyzing any given unit profile in isolation, evaluating whether it is a good profile or a bad one based on its stats, its skills, and its equipment. But in truth, infinity is a team game. When you put together a list, you are creating a team to accomplish a mission. Therefore, it behooves you to focus on what each member of the team is there for. What synergies and responsibilities exist for each unit within the context of the larger whole? What roles do each play? When does redundancy become oversaturation? When does specialization become limiting? When does the possibility of unit having multiple roles enhance its effectiveness by providing a flexibility? And when does it detract, causing it to be conflicted? The obvious strength of this type of approach to list building when you assign roles to the different units within your list is that it streamlines your approach. When you know the purpose of a given unit for why it is in your list, you don't have to think as hard within the actual game regarding what you need to do and what tools are available to you. The obvious weakness of this approach is that you can box yourself in to predetermined lines of attack and response and miss alternative or creative lines towards solving a given problem. And so tonight, we will attempt to paint with broad brush strokes without getting too granular and in doing so, allow each of our hosts to provide insight into how they go about building a list with the various components available to them. But before we get into all of that, 
let's check in with our team. And we will start with the fourth member of our team, one who up until this point has been working behind the scenes, making sure everything is operating smoothly. Devin, what's going on, man? uh, Maybe you can take a moment to introduce yourself, your gaming history in general, and Infinity in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I've been playing miniature war games for probably, uh, I want to say 14, 15 years, uh, starting with probably like a lot of people in the community with Warhammer 40k. I played Warhammer Fantasy. I've dabbled in a number of different games like Kings of War, Firestorm Armada, and probably plenty others that I'm forgetting and have sold out of. But for Infinity in particular, I've been playing for pretty close to 10 years at this point. It would have been right around the release of Human Sphere N2 before Paradiso came out, because that was the... Basically, I, I jumped into the game in full when Aleph as a faction was released. Now, I had... Yeah, I mean, I had done some demo games with... I want to say it was with Marats at the time, but that was when I first started picking up my own models and playing from there. And Aleph's been the primary faction that I play uh, ever since then. But I've gotten around to quite a few different factions. Not everything, of course, but I've played a fair bit of Neoterra, Rama Task Force, Onyx, Marats, Toha. Gotten a little bit of Nomads, like I've played some Bakunin, and probably a couple others besides. Pretty much I've dabbled in a little bit of everything, not counting non-aligned forces, other than Ariadna, and I don't think I've played as Jushing at all, but just about everything else. <laughs> Get off my lawn, Skynet. So, Devin, one of my earliest memories of Infinity involves you, and it's actually when I first started discovering the game, I went searching around to see if there was a place I could buy Infinity miniatures. And back then there was a game store it maybe 10 15 minutes north of where I lived, only 10 minutes maybe, called Adventures Quarter and I went into the store and I ordered my first Aleph miniatures from the store owner there and then I went home and back then I tried out the forums um, with Corvus Belly and I went on the Aleph forums and I posted, "Hey, I picked up these minis. Now I need to put together a list." And I got this guy named Revanchist who was who reached out and said, "Hey, do you live in Denver?" I looked around my room like, "Are they watching me even now? How does he know this?" And it ended up being you. And uh somehow you had pieced together that uh I lived in Denver. Do you remember this? I do remember that. Yeah. Uh that was one of our game nights that we were playing there and I had, you know, I caught like the top box or two of what you had picked up. I don't remember you speaking to anyone uh, that was playing necessarily, but I remember seeing the Aleph logos on the sides of the boxes and the unit logos there. And I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I uh, you know, memorized everything that you had picked up, but it looked familiar enough to that list. I remember responding to that post. Blew my mind. You, uh, Mark Rebus... Brady Cox were my first kind of introduction to the game, and I still appreciate how you guys took me under your wing. It's always good to have more people in the community, and so that was it was really cool when I realized that it was very likely that you were the same person, and so it was cool to to bring someone in and have a chance to get some of those early games in. I miss Adventures Court. I'm a little sad that it's gone. Well, enough memory lane. Ian, how about you, buddy? How are you doing, bud? What's going on? What have you been thinking about as it relates to Infinity during these quarantine times? Just throwing around some lists, getting excited for the resculpt of Mirage 5 that'll be coming out soon. And looking forward to getting that because uh, Merovingia will rise again. And then you have to paint them. Absolutely. I got the big Luxumber one, and now I need the little one to go on the game table, too. Do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll that. I'll get on that eventually. I'm bad. I'm bad with my with my shiny thing painting syndrome. Well, when you literally own almost every miniature in the Infinity line, it's hard to paint everything. That that is true. 
Okay, so what do you guys think about tonight's topic? We're going to be talking about roles within list building. Just as an overview, like what are your initial thoughts uh, as I introduced that? Personally, like I think this is one of those things that as you play Infinity more often or over a longer span of time, maybe, that it becomes a little bit more intuitive. And like personally, I don't necessarily think of this unit is going to fulfill this role, even if that's the purpose I put them in the list. It's less a conscious decision and more, you can kind of look at a list and get an idea of, okay, this fits here and this is useful for that purpose and, and things like that. Or I've got a gap here that I need to make sure I'm compensating for. How about you, Ian? I tend to be very mission focused in my list building, especially around tournaments where you can only bring, in general, two lists to do something like three to five different missions. So when I look at building lists, it's much more focused into how do I efficiently create a list that can operate effectively at multiple missions and then deciding which ones to take. You know, Obviously, sometimes you got to factor in like what your opponent is, uh, what list, list and army they're running when you step up to the table. But I go in with an idea that this list is going to be for these two or three games and this other list is going to be for the remainder and kind of having a plan in place, building it to accomplish the specific objectives of those missions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll actually have room to talk about that in tonight's episode. So as I kind of charted this out for us in our, and to guide our discussion, I'm thinking under this main topic of unit roles, and we're talking really big, broad brushstrokes here. But I'm thinking we need to talk about units that we think of as attackers, units that we think of as defenders. Then how about we talk about support units? And then finally, let's talk about mission-based units. This is where we can get into some of your philosophy, Ian, and kind of hammer that out. So let's start off with attackers. When you are putting together a list and you're thinking about you have attacking units, what do you have an eye for and how do you use those kinds of units? Give me some examples as well. Devin, let's start with you. Yeah, I would say that probably the, uh, <laughs> I guess the hallmarks of my personal play style tend to be expensive elite attack pieces, typically things that are going to be multi-role and if possible, have some sort of delivery method with them, uh, whether that just be high move and I use cautious move quite a bit or a marker state or things like that. A lot of tags fit into that category for me. I really like the Rudra when I'm playing OSS, Tariq, the Aguila Guard. A lot of those things, uh, I guess the Aguila Guard is probably the most one note out of those things, but uh, or the Asura is another good example. Those are kind of the things that I tend to look for when I'm selecting a, a primary or secondary attack piece in a list. So what do you think about in terms of range bands then? Like, uh, let's talk about the Rudra, for instance. Very resilient, obviously. Has a very interesting and unique loadout with the K1 Marksman Rifle or the Red Fury. But those are mid-range kinds of weapons. And that unit has a big silhouette. And so it starts off in the deployment zone. How do you get that puppy out of the deployment zone and into the mid-range where you're thinking, now I can leverage its skills and abilities, including its climbing plus? Most of the time that I play the Rudra, it'll be an OSS. And so I'm teaming it up with something like like an Asura because I just have a proclivity for expensive Harris teams, I guess. Yeah, that's about as expensive as it gets, right? Pretty much. <laughs> Unless I wanted to go all Asura in that Harris, it's pretty hard to beat. Are we advising that for tournament builds? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, you know, maybe maybe it could work. Maybe there's some mission that I haven't read yet that, that that's a, a winning formula, but I'm not not betting on that. But yeah, having having white noise and the and this works outside of OSS uh, or outside of a fire team as well because it has a repeater built in. White noise is a really good delivery tool against a lot of prominent ARO pieces right now. Also, I find that a lot of players will have their defensive presence in the midfield where that range band isn't as much of a detriment. Occasionally, you're going to have things that are across the board and don't have a visor, and in which case, you know, the Rouge is not necessarily the best piece to apply at that moment. And then, yeah, I'd want to have something like, uh, also in the same Harris, maybe, uh, Yadu Heavy Machine Gun, 
or maybe having uh, a Mark II sniper or something like that to try and get rid of some of those obstacles so they could start doing work. How about you, Ian? When you're thinking about attack pieces, what comes to mind? How do you leverage those kinds of pieces in the roles of attacking? So when I'm looking for attack pieces, I generally go in one of two directions. The first is more of a traditional getting a high burst weapon on a solid, decent ballistic skill platform, probably linkable and, you know, with something cheap and using that depending on whether I have access to some form of forward deployment or not, uh, determines whether, you know, I'm looking at an HMG or Spitfire. If I get forward deployment, Spitfire is great because it's already starting closer to its good range band. Now, this is the thing where putting that high burst weapon together with a cheap link team and being able to selectively pick your targets through good deployment and movement to slice the pie and take out individual models of the opponent and kind of pick apart their defenses is very key. One of my favorites for this is the veteran Kazakh, especially because you can link him with a bunch of nine-point line Kazakhs and boost him up to a ballistic skill of 16 with a heavy machine gun, and he's packing mimetism and no wound in cap and some other stuff that really makes him just awesomely effective. An amazing workhorse. Yes. There's been, in fact, I would say the majority of my games running that particular link team I have had that link team in my opponent's deployment zone fairly early in the game, just selectively moving up and engaging targets one-on-one at my discretion, not theirs. The other thing that I look at for attack pieces is something that's more like an assassin unit. And these can tend to be something that infiltrates or walks on the board or is fast-moving are generally cheap, but hard-hitting, and they're usually a throwaway troop. I don't care if it dies as long as it takes out what I need it to take out. And they're sacrificial pieces for me to remove my opponent's important things. One of my new favorites of these is the Polaris Bearpods in Cosmoflot, because while they start in your deployment zone... They're, they move pretty fast. They have smoke grenades to cover their advance. And with their Berserk, with a Trench Hammer, and all these other bonuses that they get, they generally will annihilate whatever they hit in close combat, and they're probably going to be able to get there. I had a fairly recent game uh, against another uh, player in our meta, Original Recipe Eric, uh, where he was running Tartaring Army Corps, and he had a really, really annoying veteran Kazakh in a link team next to a tank hunter missile launcher that's on top of a building that were just pinning me down and I couldn't move my link team up without eating double AROs so I just sent a bear pod in and just charged it into the vet Kazakh took a wound but I have two and dogged annihilated it and then initiated another order to charge up the side of the building with climbing plus and annihilate the tank hunter missile launcher and then did a third charge into I can't remember what and, and finally died on that one, but I didn't care because that 31-point model, which, again, is a little pricey for what I normally would use for one of these missions, but it took out almost triple its points cost in hard-hitting, highly effective opponent models. Yeah, that's pretty pretty wild, actually, that description right there. Like, for me, the con- that describes the concept that I think of as reach. The ability to extend and reach out and touch somebody Now, sometimes we can do that with a long-range weapon, like a sniper rifle or an HMG. But other times when someone's turtled up or hidden or up on top of a building, you need to have some ability to extend the game, get and reach out and touch them. And so that's that's what I kind of mean by roles, is I want to have access to a unit like that that can go do that work where nothing else could potentially accomplish that same task. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Yep. So I guess for me, I'm, and I'm, as we're talking about this, I realize, of course, everyone has different concepts behind list building. And so much of that is shaped by your own personality and your play style. I've been reflecting recently with Trevor, and he kind of was breaking down actually my play style to me 
which was an interesting experience. I don't know if you guys have ever had someone describe how you play to you. I have. It's a little bit unsettling because you're like, okay, that makes me nervous <laughs> that you, you got me that figured out. But I would say I have a pressure style of play that I am always trying to, and it's not necessarily an alpha strike approach. It's just I tend to uh, leverage a lot of pressure on my opponent and try to find cracks or weak spots or angles and come at you from a variety of different directions, whether that's I'm going first or if I'm counterpunching with going second. And so with that kind of style in the back of my head, I notice that I tend to prize more than anything else in my attack pieces, movement skills. And I mean more than just speed. I love raw speed, but I also just like those skills that can get my units to particular places efficiently and effectively. I want to leverage movement. So whether that's climbing plus, super jump, any kind of infiltration, or impersonation, any of these kinds of skills that allow me to have my uh, the unit I need when I need it at the right place at the right time. And so even beyond burst, I think I want to leverage movement to gain an advantage. What do you guys think about that? Absolutely. That's one of the key things, especially for Ariadna, is having that mobility to get where you need to be. Now, a lot of Ariadna stuff tends to be slower, you know, standard 4-4. Four, four. Uh, most of the medium infantry was 4-2 before N4, but now it's all 4-4. Four, four. But it's not getting there particularly fast in many cases, but Ariadna has a very large amount of models that have infiltration or have uh, parachutists and can walk on the board. And that's key to getting your guys where you need them to be to get the job done. And there's a decent amount of those models that also have climbing plus or super jump in order to get on top of buildings and get good angles on the opponent. Yeah. How about you, Devin? What do you think about the concept of movement as it relates to attacking? I think that obviously being able to put your attack piece where you want it to be is really important. So having those, uh, those traits or those special skills is really, really useful, and I like that in a lot of attack pieces that I bring. One thing that's kind of important to keep in mind is that cover's a lot easier to attain, and so that movement doesn't quite get as far as it used to. It gets you in position, but I feel like you're much less likely than prior to catch someone out of cover or get them at a bad ankle, unless you're using something like like hidden deployment or you're using something like airborne deployment and combat jumping on or something like that. Uh, where you can just get them really just about anywhere. Yeah. So as you kind of bring that up, then that kind of leads into some other concepts that I think about when I'm putting together the list. I usually want some kind of ARO sweeper in my list. And that's oftentimes I'm associating that with, associating that with an HMG, but not just any old HMG. I want something that can reliably delete dedicated ARO pieces, whether they're in a link team in the back line of my opponent or some kind of heavy infantry standing up, or a tag, or, or something that is dedicated to slowing me down. I want to be able to move out of my deployment zone quickly and efficiently, and rather than relying on getting by with smoke or other kinds of tools, I love to have a unit like the Vet Kazakh that you were mentioning, Ian, that's linked. Uh, something like that is going to be reliable, reliably be able to delete AROs, very efficiently with a limited amount of orders early on in the game as you're moving out of your deployment. Another thing that I'm taken with is I tend to like flanking type of units, whether that's attack remotes like the Rushi or the Bulleteer, something that's fast, Spitfire, Red Fury. Maybe it's a motorcycle uh, with the Red Fury, like with O12, what they run now, or even a, a parachutist who has a Spitfire, like the Tiger Soldier or maybe a Garuda, something that can come along the side of the board, get down the edge. Its purpose isn't to necessarily remove ARO pieces that are dedicated and standing up at the beginning of a turn, but it actually wants to punch down at other kinds of line troops that are a little bit softer, that are 
hiding out and now I've shifted the board on my opponent. If I'm up a table edge or walking on a table side, now I'm able to shift the board and get them playing at a angle that they aren't necessarily prepared for. Yeah, absolutely. And like with those, I was just going to say, Devin, you made me think about with the ease of in which cover shows up now, the ability to remove the cover modifier with marksmanship is another prized skill that I want in my uh, backline sweeper. Yeah, absolutely. Like any, any remotes that you can get with that, especially something that has a higher burst. Though I've actually used the Dakini Sniper after a fire team has broken to similar effect, and that tends to work pretty well. Getting Just because a lot of boards that I tend to play on, they're kind of offset in such a way that, you know, when you're playing deployment zone to deployment zone, those fire lanes are more limited. But if you start to rotate around the board, a lot of that kind of frees up, and Dakini are fast enough to take advantage of that. But yeah, marksmanship on remotes, the new bolts are great for that. The uh, Javaden have been through a pretty serious revamp with their points reduction and getting marksmanship on all of them. And it makes them really threatening pieces. And you can get some pretty serious numbers on things. One final thought is pertaining to what we were talking about, Ian, with your bear pods, And that's, I like to have something that I have in my mind that's dedicated to digging out my opponent if they decide to turtle. So let's just say they know I'm running something that will be able to delete their arrows. And so they, instead of leaving orders out to be removed off the board, they decide, oh, I'm going to hole up and force you to come and dig me out. Well, I want to make sure I have the tools in my list where I can go hunt you down and dig you out no matter where you go. So for me, a classic example of a unit like this would be someone like Dart or McMurrow. Guy, folks that can get up the board fast, whether that's through forward deployment or just a, a higher degree of speed, and then super jump or climbing plus where they can where they can get into areas that are difficult if a lieutenant is hidden up high in a building somewhere or if you have a hacker that you need to root out. These units aren't hackable. I love it if they can have two wounds or pseudo two wounds. And I really just want them to be able to go and root you out if you're hiding from me. Do you guys ever think about that kind of a role for your list building? Yeah. Sometimes that's, um, for me, it comes into, like I said, kind of my assassin units. But especially with Ariadna, I have a few more options when it comes to that because I have access to three different models in Ariadna that can walk on anywhere on the board, including in the enemy's deployment zone. And that's Van Zant and Margo and Durak from Mirage 5. And if people like to turtle up and they leave any little tiny bit of spot where I can't be seen to get Durak on the board, they're probably not going to have a good time. And in fact, even if they do, because Durak has two wounds and total immunity, Oftentimes I can just walk him directly on and take a round and probably be fine. Or even if I take a wound, not care. And then he's in the middle of them with double chain rifles and grenades and just wrecking somebody's face and going, okay, cool. I may have lost him, but you've also lost your defensive link team as well. Yeah. If your opponent seeds you the board by hiding and you happen to have a tool like Duroc and Margo, it's a long night for your opponent. I, I can just guarantee you if you have that right tool in that kind of a situation. And that, so that's what I'm always kind of thinking about. How about you, Devin? You were about to jump in on something. The standout to me for that sort of role, or that kind of epitomizes that for my play, tends to be something like the Samaritan, or I suppose now uh, Norkias is something that kind of checks all the boxes as far as the speed stealth doesn't have to be hackable and it's any model with protheon is going to get very powerful very quickly if it gets into a couple soft orders it just starts snowballing into this monstrosity that is horrible to try and stop so i really like the samaritan for that sort of purpose or by extension the caliban 
You've also talked to me about a concept that you call bully units. Do you want to flesh that out? Uh, yeah. So as far as uh, a unit that I would consider a bully type unit, typically they're going to be hard to remove pieces that are pretty durable. Usually something like those really advanced heavy infantry or midline tags and up things that you kind of have to answer because they'll just keep ripping you up if you don't do anything about them. Yep. <laughs> but they're, you know, inherently really difficult to remove because of how durable they are. And usually that's going to come from armor. Sometimes that'll come from mimetism or other mods, sometimes a combination if you're Achilles. And those are things that you can just kind of run rampant with. Now, of course, you have to be careful. You can't. Nothing's going to survive without support, uh, so smart play is always going to be important. But those are the types of units that I think of, like Achilles or an Avatar or some other high-end units like that, that kind of demand an answer and kind of shape the board around them. Like If your opponent sees them on the table, they have to come up with a plan immediately if they want to still have a chance yeah the way i think about that is they're the units that ask questions of your opponent basically you put achilles down on the table and you, you're saying do you have the right tool to deal with this because if you don't it's going to be a long day right yeah of course and those are things that you kind of have to think about and there are definitely answers that exist for that but sometimes they can be pretty specific for sure one other ro unit role or uh, role in the uh, list building i sometimes think about is what i would kind of loosely categorize as a midfield skirmisher anti-skirmisher unit so a lot of times your opponent is running some skirmishers these are camo troops they've got visual modifiers and they're in the middle of the board and they're they can sometimes be difficult to root out and so having a tool that can go and sweep those types of units whether again here's an example where dart is super effective because of her msv1 but same thing with the guilang for yu ching or an asura like you were talking about earlier devin especially the spitfire or the multi-rifle the asura is just a brutal against midfield skirmishers but just having some kind of unit that can quickly answer the challenge that skirmishers can oftentimes present. Yeah, I think that you can kind of, I mean, I suppose that's true of a lot of these different roles, but you can go with either those elite attack pieces like an MSV3 unit with a medium or short range weapon or other units that have specialized tools for that. But I also really like the option of using something like a warband or your own skirmishers with shotguns or basically anything that can bring direct template weapons are a great way to deal with those, especially if you can also place mines. Skirmishers can uh, very easily play that role against other skirmishers, depending on who gets started first, I suppose. Yeah. And what equipment, like if you have MSV1, you've got a leg up as a skirmisher against another skirmisher. I particularly like getting some cheap units with chain rifles because or flamethrowers specifically because they have access to intuitive attack so you roll up on a camouflage marker in the middle of the field and you force a decision on that marker and that is are they going to reveal and take a template to the face or are they going to stay still and then you spend another order to intuitive attack them and they might still take the template to the face absolutely I mean, that's one of the best ways to root out um, camouflage units. You get two chances because a lot of those warbands have really good whip also. Yep. A lot of them are 14s or up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to move us on. Let's talk a little bit about defending units then. So Ian, I want you to kick us off with how you think about defending. What kind of units do you lead it, lean into? And what's your philosophy on how you identify those for, for the roles of defending against the oncoming attack? This I also break into two categories. There's going to be my deployment zone defensive pieces. This will be things that maybe are linked, maybe you're not, depending on 
how I build the list for the mission. But it's going to be oftentimes sniper rifles uh, because they're already kind of low bursts. So if they are in ARO, they're not losing a whole lot there. Actually, one of my favorites is rocket launchers because, again, generally low burst. So they're not losing a whole lot there by being an ARO piece. But the utility of laying down templates, especially with continuous damage, is a big threat to anything moving up the table. So that's one half of the piece. The second half of how I look at defensive units is actually my midfield skirmishers. And these are generally being things that are camouflaged, might possibly have mine layer, and having, you know, two or three or four or five, ten camouflage markers in the midfield is a huge deterrent to your opponent moving up to do things because they don't know whether that camouflage token is a mine or it's nothing or it's a shotgun or something like that that's going to be hard to deal with. And with effective deployment of putting some of your camouflage markers, you know, just far enough around a corner to cover an objective if it's a mine or, you know, a shotgun or something, but in a position that your opponent can't see it to discover it unless they actually come around the corner, it can be absolutely fantastic to make your opponent waste orders trying to do that. Now, the downfall of this is if they bring sensor, which in my experience, sensor is not super commonly played, even if it is available, although I do feel that it is getting a little more common with the major increases in camouflage markers that are going on the board. Yeah, you're kind of stealing some thunder here because you just your two categories are kind of a, how I think about it as well. And especially the camouflage approach to like using skirmishers to basically gum up the middle of the board and force your opponent to wade through and really dig you out. Camouflage is a, an effective ARO option. I think I, it was the white noise guys that first started using terms that I gravitated towards, which is hard ARO's versus soft ARO's. These were concepts that I was already leaning into, but it gave me a quick and easy language to identify what you're describing with those camouflage markers is they're providing soft AROs that they're a presence that your opponent needs to figure out how to deal with, but they're just not dedicated pieces that they're shooting down range in a face-to-face engagement. Yep. And another thing with that is that they don't always have to have a good gun in order to be effective, to be an effective threat. One of the most effective lists that I have brought to a tournament actually included four chasseurs with adhesive launchers. And the whole point of this list was purely to lock down the opponent. And there was several games where my opponent got gun shy about moving anything within line of sight of a camouflage marker for fear of getting hit with a adhesive launcher and it became a situation of let me guess is it another guy with a adhesive launcher and it's like yeah yeah it is and i had a couple of games where we called it partway through the second turn because my opponent had absolutely nothing standing that wasn't glued to the table that's crazy to be fair i would say an adhesive launcher is a good gun specifically because it can deal with the vast majority of units, whether they're hackable or not, whether they're high wound count or high armor or not, pretty valuable, particularly in air. So I don't know if I would consider that a bad gun. No, I'm not saying it's a bad gun. It's That's why I take it, but it's not traditionally thought of as a, like an attack piece kind of weapon. For sure, but like Devin pointed out, in ARO, when you've only got a one burst anyways, it's really effective. Yep. Devin, how about you? How do you think about defending? What kind of units do you gravitate towards? So the two things that I care about when defending are going to be, one, absorbing enemy orders. That's kind of the main purpose of AROs, because they're usually not strong enough to reliably kill enemy pieces. Not to say that won't happen. It definitely can and will. But you can't really bank on that usually. And then the other portion for me would be either protecting my orders or my useful pieces. And those might be things that a lot of people would consider 
like corner guards or deployment zone defensive pieces that kind of play that role. So if I'm using something that is going to try and take away enemy orders, the main things I typically want to find are, and I guess it's probably true somewhat of both, is that they usually are less expensive. They're usually going to be weapons that are either templates, particularly because of the benefit against fire teams, or they apply or they uh, they call for multiple saves, and ideally things that are going to be fairly expendable. So things that I would like to bring for defense are usually going to be things like most factions flash pulse bots are a great option in Aleph taking post humans like the proxy sniper or Mark II sniper, the Mark IV rocket launcher, things like that, where it's not costing you very much, both to put them in your list or taking orders away from your pool as you play. Nafatun and Auxilia or other warbands, cheap Panzerfaust units. You know, I'm looking to try and get O12 on the table sometime soon. And so all those riot stoppers are a kind of a siren call right now. Those are great weapons to have for the same reason that, you know, you were talking about with the adhesive launchers, Ian. So like the team Sirius comes to mind. So yeah, those are the things that I tend to look for. You can also use long range pieces are important, but I try not to deploy on top of buildings as much as possible, or at least on top of buildings that are seeing huge swaths of the board, which typically they shouldn't anyway on good boards. But in those instances where you do, it's very easy to fall into that sniper nest trap because it may be a commanding position, but it also lets your opponent choose their best piece to answer that threat. And so I typically try and prefer lower to the ground deployments, trying to hit a couple fire lanes as opposed to as much of the board as I can possibly see. Now, there are units that kind of break that rule a little bit. I think of the Nakawal in Toha is really good for that because they can deploy wherever they want. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So um, you raised a couple of really good points there. I particularly like your concept of saying AROing is all about order expenditure. So very rarely do I want to stick something looking all the way into the deployment zone. I always want my opponent to expend at least two, three, or four orders before they're able to remove one of my ARO pieces off the bat. Just if I can delay, 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 that's a win for me. You also mentioned corner guarding corners with template weapons, warbands. Do you want to unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, those kind of fall into my second uh, category of sorts, trying to defend my own support units. Those are going to be things like 360 Visor, Thorkatai, Auxilia, or most warbands, things that in and of themselves are pretty cheap and don't really take much away from my list and ideally can still do something else on their own. Like the Nafatun are really flexible in Rama because they count as Gulams and can join, they can refill my core team. Or the Thorkatai can be specialists as a backup option in case things have gone particularly awry and stuff like that. So having those having those corner guards is really useful, especially with combat jump being really powerful right now, where it's gotten that boost where you don't need to place a template anymore in N4. So you have a lot of flexibility with how you can deploy. There's more prevalence in parachutist deployment zone. Mm -hmm. And so those are things you have to be aware of. And there's a lot of attack vectors that if you're coming from a background of playing the game for a little while, things that just really weren't available. You know, unless you're playing against US Ariadna, then you could assume something was coming in behind you. Yeah, everything went from it went from one model, Van Zant, to now there's like five or six models across the, the game that can do that. Across like three or four factions. Right. Or if you're particularly old school in Juching. Yeah, when Kodali used to be able to do it. Poor Kodali. <laughs> Yeah, it was before my time, boys. Well, you know, everything was fine until the Sepsitor happened. But was she really Sepsitored is the question. Ooh, betrayal spoilers. Okay, so keeping us on track, a couple other things that probably worth talking about when we're 
exploring, defending. Maybe Ian, you can address this. I noticed we haven't talked about peripherals yet um, and how we can use peripherals to defend, how we can use minds to defend. And then I'm also thinking about bodies, extra bodies, whether that's a peripheral or something like a post-human or a G-Sync unit, but just throwing extra bodies in situations where they can be uh, AROing to some degree without costing you orders. So do you want to tackle any of those topics, Ian? I think that a lot of the stuff that can take a peripheral, specifically like a synced bot, and Pano has a ton of these with like Auxilia or even all the way up to like the Seraph tags that have a linked ox bot that has a heavy flamethrower. And that's just one more model on the table that doesn't use a slot, doesn't cost an order, but with effective positioning can really be a good defensive piece, especially against things like impersonators or parachutists that are trying to get into your deployment zone or come in along the board edge. And, you know, you give your opponent a bad decision, like, you can come in there, but you're going to eat a heavy flamethrower. And that's not going to go well for you. So those work fantastically for that at an order efficiency of not costing you an order to use. You just deploy them there effectively. Then mine layer units, you know, I talked about mine using mine layers in the midfield, but there's other mine layers that work equally well in the deployment zone. One that comes to mind is the Alpha Seed for Hakazlam. Because not only is it a size 5 heavy infantry with some big guns that's rock hard, but it has mine layers. So you toss that out, have a mine you know, behind it or in a corner, depending on your deployment. And that's just one more obstacle for your opponent to dig through coming to get you. Devin, last thing on this topic. Let's talk about hacking as a defensive tool, especially repeaters and midfield skirmishers that are dedicated hackers. In N4, I think this is a new, I mean, this has always been present, even in N3, but especially now in N4 with the streamlining of hacking programs and how the hacking device that is oftentimes on an infiltrator can be so effective in exerting board control. But there's also the presence of repeaters, deployable repeaters out in the midboard. How do you think of those tools as it relates to defending? There's... A couple key things with hacking in defense that I think are really valuable. One, obviously, the change of spotlight to be an ARO means that those resources that you spend setting up those models with repeater or deploying repeaters or throwing out those pitchers, they're always going to have value. It doesn't matter if you're playing against an Ariadna list or a Hakazlam list with no hackable models. That just starts to tilt more face-to-face roles in your favor. And I think more important than just putting that effect on them is the kind of psychological impact of that is that your opponent is more and more likely as to not want to proceed because there's this conception that I'm spending my orders, and now I'm less likely to do what I need to do because these mods are slipping further away from me. Yeah. And it's kind of compounded for units that are hackable, and you have to run through those oblivion nets. And so those pieces that tend to be really strong pieces have that pronounced vulnerability of, if there's repeaters in place, that's worse than a mine to most heavy infantry and especially tags that's something you don't want to deal with and that's why like i had said earlier i like things that can force multiple saves for kind of the same reason is that you could potentially lose a model that shouldn't be taken out by a single hit but if you get oblivions that tag that heavy infantry that remote they're done for the turn unless you want to spend even more orders to get an engineer in place and then spend an order to fix it. Hacking is just another layer that people would have to fight through. And the persistence of effects is really valuable because that means 
if they don't want to spend even more orders trying to reset out of a spotlight, or in the really unfortunate instance of wanting to try and reset out of isolation, which you typically are not going to want to do just because it's such a low likelihood for your order expenditure, you'll get to take advantage of those on your active turn. And so now your face-to-faces with extra burst are benefiting from the extra modifiers or you know, maybe that opponent is immobilized. And so sure, they can try and reset, but while they're doing that, you're riddling them with bullets. You know, spotlight really is a thing. Like it's easy to poo-poo it a bit because you're thinking, well, it has no immediate effect. But the moment you have like something with guided out there sitting on the table, your opponent feels the existential threat of getting spotlit in ARO. Yeah, and it kind of demands that they now spend the resources necessary, whether they just bite the bullet and spend, you know, maybe they're around a corner and can do it safely enough. Maybe they've gotten out of repeated range, but even so, if you're spending one, two, three orders trying to reset so you don't take missiles on your opponent's next turn, that's just that many fewer orders that you get to utilize for things that you actually need to get done. What I like about how this conversation, the direction it took, is that I think we can agree there are a number of ways to defend in Infinity that don't assume a face-to-face engagement in gunfighting. Yeah, absolutely. And the more you can use those kind of oblique, come-at-them-sideways, asymmetrical approaches to delay your opponent. Like the way I think about it is I, it's not even the whole game. I'm thinking primarily about turn one. I need to blunt my opponent's turn one and give me time to then counterattack. If I can accomplish, if I can get through turn one with only taking one or two wounds or one or two, losing one or two pieces, then I'm feeling really confident about my counterpunch either in the bottom half of that turn or the beginning of turn two. Definitely, yeah. Okay, let's talk about support pieces. We don't have to spend as much time here, but I do think there are a couple critical unit profiles and types that fit into almost all of our lists, and they usually sit in this category of support pieces. We're talking doctors, engineers, Evo bots, some form of hacking. Uh, what do you guys think about the your approach towards support? When it comes to support units, a lot of this is mission dependent, but in general, there's also some stuff you can do. Now, if you're expecting to run up against a lot of uh, hackers with, say, Oblivion or adhesive launchers or other things that are going to administer states to your models, as well as if you're running a lot of things with structure like remotes or tags, it pays to have an engineer on hand. I think you're right. Mission dependent, for sure. But with the state of N4, I almost think I'm always running an engineer because of those criteria that you just laid out. Uh, Not to interrupt you, but I just wanted to say, like, engineer has become super valuable to me in list building. Now, you can also have things like your helper bots that help, you know, increase your projection of that ability by having you know your engineer in one corner and your help about in the other corner so that depending on where your target that you need to fix is you have a better chance to get there same thing with a doctor although doctors i feel are somewhat valued less in n4 than they were and that's only because paramedic got significantly better by not inflicting a penalty on its role like it used to so doctor and paramedic are almost interchangeable at this point it's just One can take the helper bots and one can't. But you have a situation where if you have that piece, that attack piece that you really need working, especially if they have uh, shock immunity and now they go down, you have the ability to bring them back up, usually fairly reliably. There's a few other things that go into this, Uh, you know, support hackers like Evos running into putting bonuses, if only, you know, firewall mods onto a category of your troops. And one of my favorites that you didn't mention is baggage. Yep. Because if you have disposable weapons like mines or Panzerfausts or, you know, mine dispensers, pitchers, things like that, 
that you're going to make heavy use of, it pays to have a cheap baggage bot on the board so that you can reload those and use them more. Yeah, I love that. As you were mentioning the the lessening of the effect of Doctor, it also made me think of the fact that no one in Cap is seems to be everywhere in N4 now, even more than in N3. So that is also a decrease in its effectiveness. What do you guys think about helper bots? As someone who plays Aleph almost exclusively, I know that this is against the grain, but I actually almost find that I rarely bring a helper bot unless I know for a fact I'm running a unit that's going to be an ARO, that's going to be in a stationary place that I'm going to try to keep up and running on a regular basis. I oftentimes feel like I don't have enough points to afford a helper bot. How do you guys approach those supplemental tools? So I've kind of grown fond of having support staff in fire teams. I was just going to mention this, that you, your, your philosophy about this, especially with engineers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, kind of for the same reasons we were talking about, about uh, midfield repeaters and hacking, especially so if you have an engineer that's not ha- having better than a servant remote that you have to spend two, three orders traveling is having an engineer inside of one movement of another member of the fire team. Like I've grown really fond of having like Parvati or even Trish in an OSS fire team. Almost every fire team that I run in Rama will have a doctor in it because they have so many doctor profiles available. And it's of course really helpful for the missions on top of it. But yeah, I find that unless it's purely a support piece, and by that I mean something that's dedicated to fill just its role kind of sitting hidden in your deployment zone, something like an Evo remote uh, or an Evo hacker remote or a plain line trooper doctor or engineer, things like that, then I'll use servant bots. But typically, I'd rather have them in the fire possible and there's a lot more wildcard available to make feasible i will say though that if you have three points to spare and not a whole lot else uh, since servant bots don't take up a trooper slot you might as well take one and use it for if nothing else as a cheap minesweeper yeah there's a lot of little tools that you can use with these helper bots if you become adept with them run it through the minefield detonate all those things then you don't have to deal with them Get them into close combat with you. Yes. Plus one burst. No, just the fact that they have the, uh, what is it, the um, Paris CC weapon. <laughs> and that thing's annoying to deal with. Yeah, but their, their CC values typically aren't anything that you can reliably hit with. No, but it just forces your opponent to waste orders. Yeah, I'm just saying I probably wouldn't try and spend orders to make the attack. But I've definitely, definitely dodged a Udbot into an avatar to keep it off. So with uh, the short time they ha- we have remaining, let's talk about mission-based units. The, and what I'm thinking here is there are certain missions that require a focus on a certain type of unit that elevates their consideration in your list building above and beyond what you might talk of, normally think of as a general typology. So Ian, you in particular lean heavy into building lists with missions in mind. Do you want to share some of your thoughts on this topic? Because this is a mission-based game and you win the missions by completing the objectives within them, it is important to build your lists, especially in a tournament where you know the missions in advance, to accomplish those missions. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, often it's specialists, but it doesn't always mean specialists. It's bringing the right tools for the job and giving them the support that they need to accomplish that objective. We had a tournament. It was at the uh, Krug about, not this year because it was canceled, but the year prior. And two of the missions were looting and sabotage and rescue. And I brought the same list to both of those missions. And what won me the missions was not a specialist. It was the cheap, basic Metro troops that Merovingia can take. And by looking at what their profiles had to offer, it became an easy choice because they have 
access to an infiltration profile that's got a one-use camouflage that has demolition charges, and they have terrain total. And this all came together because in looting and sabotage, and by the way, I took five of them. In looting and sabotage, I was able to land four of the five directly near the antenna I had to destroy. I walked Durok onto the board. He moved up and through smoke, and then I used coordinated orders to coordinate decharge the objective and by the fourth order of my first turn going first i had eight out of the ten objective points and then all i had to do was hunker down and defend and that game was called very early my opponent capitulated in about midway through their second turn and i had the full 10 points and they had zero in the rescue mission this list also worked about the same way because you have to grab the civilians from outside the enemy deployment zone and get them back to your table. So the infiltration worked there, and I was able to get a few of them down. In addition, I believe it's a saturation zone, or um, however it is, it's basically a difficult terrain zone. So this is where the terrain total came into effect of not being affected by that. And again, Duroc walks in, throws smoke, the opponent didn't have MSV, so... I was able to grab civilians and get two of them back to my deployment zone all within the first turn, and then I just had to hunker down and defend. And I won those games specifically by looking at what tools do I have with this army to accomplish these specific objectives and leveraging that. And again, being a tournament with multiple missions and having to only be able to bring two lists, it was figuring out which missions had common requirements that I could then build for to make it, you know, multiple missions fit one list for that construction. The lack of attention to the missions in list design, that can devastate your chances to be successful, for sure. Like, it does actually surprise me when people roll up with a general list and they just don't have the tools to actually even be successful in the mission that they're playing. And while we consider that a fairly a no-brainer, it's probably worth speaking out and saying, yes, there's something to be said for just knowing your list and how you play a general list, but if you're not keeping in mind the mission at hand, you're not setting yourself up to be as uh, successful as you could be. Absolutely. Yeah, building a list for, say, Panic Room is going to be very different than a list you might build if you're trying to play Highly Classified. We're going to wrap things up here um, and transition to our final comments, but I do want to just say this. I can't believe we had this conversation as much as we did and not talk about a couple units. And I know that people are going to be like, what about this? What about this? Like The fact that we didn't talk about Total Reaction Bots, for instance, like people are going to... for sure make comments, but we relish that. We hope that you can be involved in our Discord and have a conversation following up this podcast with all the things that we missed and some of your own concepts and ideas. But before we get to our final thoughts, we want to take a moment to say, we are very excited to see the Metachemistry community grow. If you want to be part of it, please do join our Discord, it's free and really serves as a supportive community for the game of Infinity. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe to the podcast, obviously, and maybe you can even share it on Facebook or other social media platforms just to get the word out a bit. Maybe share it in some of your different groups, gaming groups that you're a part of. And if you want to support us in a more concrete way, you can sponsor us through Patreon. We've got several different levels of commitments some of which give you exclusive access to additional content and to us as content creators. So we're pretty excited about the work that has gone into trying to build a community that is thoughtful and really engaged in these questions of ITS gameplay and tactics. And we're excited to see everyone that's jumping on board with that. Ian, Devin, do you have any final thoughts as we're about to sign off? Yeah, I I think that... In order to have lists that you're going to have a better chance of success with, it's really good to sit down and think about why am I adding this to my list? What am I expecting it to do? 
what sorts of jobs should it be able to fulfill and what's my plan if it can't like that's a really strong way to kind of up your game is to give a little bit of forethought to those lists particularly in a tournament environment where you not only have to consider what requirements you may need for a mission but the fact that your list has to be able to or lists rather have to be able to take on a wide variety of opponents you know how do you deal with that lawnmower mormare or azrael or you know how do you deal with the sphinx in addition to all the things that you need to be accomplishing in your mission it just kind of expands all the things you need to think about so having a plan going in makes a big difference the biggest thing for me when building a list is practice 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 and unfortunately right now that's a little hard but i encourage everybody that if you're prepping for a tournament especially but even just in general in your casual gaming it's important to practice your lists and what i mean by that is play it a few times get the feedback from your opponent and see how it performs see if they have any suggestions about how to get the performance that you want so you can start tweaking here and there to get that and in addition i encourage and challenge everybody to seek out the higher tier players in your local metas and challenge them because while you may get beaten you are going to learn a lot about your list you're going to learn a lot about the tactics of your opponent's lists and it's going to improve you as a player and that's a big thing that i do every tournament is i build a list and i go to every high tier players in our community and i go hey let's play and i want your feedback after the game and then when we actually go to the big tournaments generally tends to do pretty well because i've fine-tuned and tweaked that list down to perfection and know it inside and out for the missions that we're going to be playing yeah i like both those suggestions i think for me as i think about the conversation we've had tonight for this episode it's just been a good reminder that we all take different approaches and not everyone's going to think the way you think about list building and the value of having these kinds of conversations is you get side outside of your own experience your own context and you hear hey these are how other people think about putting a list together and the different components that they want to make sure are present and that gives us a chance to learn together and the more we're learning the more we're growing right so that's the ultimate goal with what we're doing here with metachemistry is helping to improve not just our own game but the community's game across the board and if somehow we can contribute just a little bit to that growth in the community, then we'll call this one successful. Having said that, this has been Andrew, Devin, and Ian, and that's the meta.